Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, I was born in North Carolina, Tyler, Goldsboro. My father was stationed at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base at the time, late 1950s, back in the day. Uh, so I am a Tar Heel. You are a Tar Heel. Officially. I only lived there for a couple years before we were transferred to beautiful Waco, Texas. But... Uh, we're going to go to North Carolina today and talk to who I think is the best shoreline manager in America, uh, Rudy Rudolph, the shore protection manager at Carteret County from Swansboro, North Carolina. Beautiful tropical coastal town, absolutely stunning, Swansboro, North Carolina. Carteret County, Peter, is a really dynamic coastal part of the American shoreline, yeah. which is really what makes this show, I think, so interesting. How is this particularly dynamic stretch of barrier island communities not only managing their shoreline from an engineering perspective, yeah. but how are they financing these really what can be very expensive projects? Uh, how is that working? And we're going to explore that uh, on this show, ladies and gentlemen, and we're really looking forward to it. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Rudy, thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. This is a repeat uh appearance because I think we uh, we sat down with you at uh, ASBPA uh, a couple years ago, uh, coming up on the ASBPA conference at the end of this month in New Orleans, uh, if uh, the town is put back together by then. Uh, but great to have you back on the show, Rudy. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate those uh, uh, comments in the intro. I was uh, breaking out my wallet and about ready to wire you some that's some only money. 25 dollars would you just send it send a check we'll take checks and cash uh yeah, the sandman you are called um coming up on your 20th anniversary uh december 4th of this year you will have been the shore protection manager for carteret county for a whopping 20 years i got to think one of the original shore protection managers uh local government officials with a dedicated job to managing a beach system uh in america yeah, I think so. Um, it's a unique model because um, we have a beach commission that um, was mandated in our in our state uh, of bed tax law. And so uh, the management scheme is almost as important as the office of itself. And uh, we could talk about that here. here we uh, should later, uh, later too. Let's do. Let's give it. Let's give sure. the. Uh, let's give the listeners a kind of a setup overview about the arrangement. Uh, you work for the county. Uh, not for a municipality. Uh, so the county is managing all of the beaches uh, in Carteret County. And there's a which bunch is of right in the middle of I the state. It. If you're if you aren't familiar with Carteret County, which I have to confess, 
Uh, I, I often have to consult old Google Maps when we do these shows. Google it up. It's a beautiful place, but it is right in the middle. If you were to kind of slice the uh, North Carolina coast there, uh, it'd be right in the middle. Correct. I always say if you get lost in North Carolina on the coast, just kind of orient or, or orientate yourself to one of the capes. There's a cape of a lookout to the north. Uh, I'm sorry, Cape Hatteras to the north. Cape, you know, lookout is in the middle, and that's where kind of we are, and on on the on the south limb of that. And then there's Cape, uh, you know, Fear. So that's sort of how you do the uh, a, a geography there. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, North Carolina has 325 uh, miles of uh, a shoreline, oceanfront, that is, and so. We, uh, Carter County, we're again, we're like in the middle of the whole state, but we're also in the middle of sort of, of, uh, of a bunch of national uh, seashore areas. So we got Cape Hatteras and, and Cape Lookout, and then Camp Lejeune is to the south of us. So as we were talking about before I got on, we're the only developed beach, which is Boga Banks in Carter County. We're the only developed beach really between say Ocracoke or Hatteras Village to the north and North Topsail to the south. And that's almost the middle 100 miles of the whole entire state. So wow. if you're a family that's going to the beach just to, you know, grill out and, you know, chill out for, for, the, for the whole entire week, we're about the only game in that middle whole entire corridor of, uh, of North Carolina. Well, the, part of the reason it is a popular uh, county vi- beach to visit is because of the incredible uh, management of the Barrier Island a system that that you spearhead in Carteret County. Uh, and I have to say to listeners around the country, what I find uh, powerful about the about the model that Rudy works within is as a as a county employee, uh, the county has a, a, an intrinsically regional way of thinking about it. Shoreline. This is not down to the municipal level on the barrier island. Uh, Rudy, tell us about the Barrier Island beaches that you manage. How many towns are there? How many jurisdictions uh, are involved in the shoreline management program you oversee? Sure. So in so um, in general, we have about, it's hard to believe, we have almost 85 miles of shoreline on the Carter County, uh, 25 of which is the developed island of, 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 of Boat Banks. The rest of it is is the Cape Lookout a National a Seashore to our kind of north. Uh, so the Bogue Banks is our sort of bailiwick. And so uh, 25 mile Long Island, uh, a continuous. Um, we have Fort Macon, which is 1.4 miles. We have Atlantic Beach, the uh, a town of, at a 4.5 miles. Then we hit a Pinal Shores as you go west, another four and a half miles. We have a uh, a little cluster there we call a uh, Salter Path and uh, and uh, Indian Beach. That's about another 2.5 miles. And then we have Emerald Isle, which almost occupies the western half of the island, and that's about 12 miles long. So um, all those entities are sort of uh, in our wheelhouse. Yeah, all there in Carteret County. And you, you started to lead off with this about how the structure, the management structure is actually super important here. And kind of unique, Peter, I believe in uh, Texas, uh, the state would work directly with the municipalities uh, on uh, these types of things. 
Uh, I know in California, it mostly works that way, unless, of course, the county uh, owns the beach, I guess, or however it may be. But in in uh, North Carolina, it's a little different. Rudy, would you walk us through, you mentioned some law back in, I, I don't think you might have said uh, 1980, but walk us through how this, how this structure uh, came to be. Yeah, great. I mean, it's really interesting, actually. So I'm going to go back to 1960. <laughs> so 1960. 1960, Hurricane Donna hit uh, a boat banks, uh, blasted a, uh, a hole through the island, a, a, a temporary inlet. Um, and basically at that time, boat banks only had a, had a, a single bridge of, a connecting to the mainland. Um, and uh, it, was, it was still pretty un, un, you know, developed. Well, fast forward 30 some odd years you know, later, and we're in the 1990s, and lo and behold, we had almost a three-decade um, era of almost no, you know, significant hurricanes. Well, the 90s came Hurricane Bertha and Fran in 96, Bonnie in 98, uh, Dennis 1 and 2, we call it, because it kind of hit us twice. And then we had Floyd um, in 1999. And so that really caught us off guard. And what's kind of interesting from more of a kind of demographic standpoint during that same 30 years, we got a second bridge on onto the island, and the and the island in um, itself sort of developed. So, for instance, Pinal Shores Incorporated in, in 1973, Indian Beach Incorporated um, in 1973, um, as well. So, uh, you know, we went that 30 years without without a, a hurricane, but to speak of. Then all of a sudden, we got this, you know, hammered. So. Um, the leadership at that time said, listen, we need, we need to, you know, do something about this. We're going to get involved with the shoreline management and nourishment business. And they said, uh, we're going to need a funding source. Uh, we'll make that our, our room tax. And um, so a lot of other, you know, municipalities across the country have, you know, a portion of their bed tax, if you will, going towards uh, a nourishment or, sh or shoreline protection. But what was, what was sort of unique of our um, enacting legislation, which is a via a state law, it said not only are we going to increase our our bed tax and give you know give you know one one a half of it for the sole purpose of, of nourishment, we're also going to create a, a, a beach commission by law, and it's always always it's always eleven members. It's uh, two members from Emerald Isle, one member from Indian Beach, two from Pinal Shores, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it has this designated formula that forces all the beach towns to sit together, make, you know, decisions for the whole island, not necessarily their own little, you know, stovepipe, if you will. And, and I serve as their yeah, a town manager, if you will. Um, so, you know, we, you know, have, you know, detailed meetings every week. We really think is every week, every month. Um, so we really, you know, we really approach it from an island-wide, uh, uh, what's called a perspective. And in the law, it also says that the beach commission has final say on how on on how those uh, bed taxes are used. So that almost served as a protection mechanism for towns or the county at large to go rogue and start saying what what needs to be done what done uh, with the uh, bed tax. So that that management structure has been almost just important about 
as as it is you know putting you know sand on the beach and getting permits and and stuff like that it's the best structure i think uh, out there and for the very reasons you've outlined 11 member commission dedicated annual funding stream of 50% of the bed tax they're called bed taxes occupancy taxes room taxes uh, but which is derived from the visitorship that the uh, of course to the to the shoreline um, every municipality is represented on the commission and they have the final word so it takes the politics out of the of these uh, beach towns competing against each other they have to work it out together it's inherently regional it's damn good rudy and tell us a little bit about annually uh not so much on the revenue side but in terms of the beach the cost of the beach management program that you are administering roughly speaking what's the range annually of the expenditure that you're that you're handling yeah um it's it's always you know when you're like a project-based entity like like like, you know we are it could and you know, some years it's zero, zero. Um, other years it's you know thirty million dollars. But our uh, bed tax is generating now about four and a half million dollars solely for you know the like a, a nourishment half. So you know it's about four and a half you know million dollars uh, per year that uh, you know we get to um, accrue, if you will, minus our kind of operating expenses. And I and I mentioned the operating expenses because we have. I would say, in addition to that management structure we talked about, we we got really wise back back in the early 2000s, and we set up a uh, monitoring program, a survey program, not just on Bogue Banks, but to the adjacent island to our east, which is uh, a Shackford Banks, which is uh, uh, which is part of the Cape Lookout uh, seashore, and then to our west, which is Bear Island, which is owned owned up by the state parks. So we have 166. A profile network that we that we do every single year, um, and after I'm a hurricane, I'm if necessary. So um, we really have a good sense of what's sort of going on, and we you know share the data with our partners at the National Park Service and the state. So again, it's again as you were saying, it's more this regional concept and you know cooperation that's you know really helped. And not just on the funding of funding issues and stuff like that, but but also on like you know policy issues. You know, um, right now we're dealing with the Red Knot, a Rufa, a critical habitat, a designation, as you know, a proposed. And again, having uh, well, just let me interrupt. The Red Knot being a uh, a shorebird, a shorebird that is on the endangered species list, and a critical habitat designation for the Red Knot is that. Uh, did, did you say that the, the Bogue Bank has been designated critical habitat for the Red Knot? As for yeah, they uh, came out with a proposal on July fifteenth, um, and they listed the species as threatened back in twenty fourteen or early twenty fifteen. And and just an example, so so we're part of this critical habitat designation. I don't think it's justified, and all, and we could talk about that for days on end, but. I may not think it's you know justified, but but now it's good to present that to the beach commission and all of our partners and towns and say, okay, what is going to be our you know a, a position on this? And you know a, you know a couple hours or, or 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 days later, we have all the towns up passing a resolution. You know may may even get the state parks involved and and uh, et cetera et cetera. So 
that management scheme we were talking about with the beach commission and serving as a board and, and the shore, you know, a protection office serving as like a town or, you know, county manager has really helped out, not just in the boots on the ground, put sand on the beach issues, but on policy issues as well. Yeah, I, I think I think that's really true. And what I really like about it is that particularly in Carteret County, and I think this is, might just be a little bit of luck, maybe a little bit, but it's a good region. It's like a good, like the boundaries of Carteret County seem to make some sense because of the, the actual geography of the space. And I'm actually thinking this is a really nutso idea, but maybe this is one of the things we could do to better manage our coastal areas is either create councils of government between multiple counties that maybe are in the same sediment cell or goodness, this is really audacious. Redraw county lines such <laughs> that they make sense. I'm think, looking at you, California. I mean, these county lines are, are make no sense. And uh, maybe we need to redraw draw those so that they are more reflective of kind of a, of a region uh, that these counties will have to be managing. Uh, because I think, Rudy, in your case, we're showing how you are able to organize the subunits, the municipalities and communities within your jurisdiction to understand what's going on in the whole. They're, as you said, they're not as stovepiped uh, in their perspectives. And I think, Peter, we're always talking about siloing and how on the coast you just can't be siloed. You are just way too connected. Rudy, uh, let's go back to uh, that period in the 90s when the hurricanes come back and... Um, I, I, were, was there what sort of shore protection work have has happened since then? Uh, uh, I know that there's been some beach nourishment. Can you just characterize uh, the the level of work that's happened, kind of the history? Sure, and um, I'll make a comment about what you said about kind of kind of regionally or kind of geographically being a, a, little, a little bit lucky, and we are. We were, you know, our, we have one you know a developed island. It's kind of long and 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 a continuous we're not dissected by you know inlets and you know when when you live on one side of the of the, of the inlet versus you know the other that's another a, a dynamic and you know we don't have to deal with that on a municipal level uh we do deal with it with with the uh, national park service and the state park but that's not as uh you know um adversarial if you will at it's times. not as political for certain i mean yeah exactly exactly so yeah so um i'll try to make this quick so so at the same time this is circa 2000 2001 we we start this management scheme and the towns needed like immediate help now because again we went through like five hurricanes and this it was shocking um and we're not a Another thing too, taking a step back, we're not really a true overwash type of you know barrier island. We have a very robust a, a dune system for just about the whole entire island. So we're more if the erosion gets bad, we're more of like a like you know bluff erosion type of style than we are tank tread roll roll over our, ourselves style. So again, after the hurricanes of the of the nineties, you're looking at twenty feet, thirty feet. I'm escarpments like for miles upon miles. So the towns um, went ahead and did and did their own, you know, <laughs> projects. At first, they passed voter uh, approved bond a referendum, uh, oceanfront districts and non oceanfront districts. 
Uh, Moorhead City Harbor is also located located in, uh, in, in, in Carteret County, and that's basically a, a Beaufort Inlet, um, and they dredge a lot of sand out of there for the uh, port. Um, so we got to use uh, some of that sand as well. Then uh, fast forwarding to the late 2000s, um, we realized that kind of project by, you know, project approach was, was you know, diabolical. Um, and again, we and again we had this beach commission whole island philosophy sit in. So we so we created what we called the master plan, which is basically the whole island uh, developed different you know triggers for you know each you know um, town or you know geographic area, mm -hmm. a geomorphic area really, um, and kind of have the and kind of that was the master plan was important because a we got like one permit for the whole entire island, and it also helped us map the future of our funding and and expenditures. So that's so we've been on that course since you know the early 20, 2010s with the master plan. So um, if you you know press the lever and see what it all all sort of amounts amounts to. We're uh, we put about two hundred million dollars worth of of um, of a nourishment on the beach since uh, Hurricane Floyd in nineteen ninety nine, and uh, just about eighteen million uh, cubic yards of sand. Wow. Well, it is a good system, and you mentioned kind of quickly this notion of the triggers and and in the shoreline master plan, and for the benefit of. The listeners out there and other local government folks who are charged with the responsibility to manage beach erosion and undertake beach nourishment projects, the magic of that, uh, you've got this annual uh, countywide uh, monitoring program that extends to the uh, adjacent islands to the north and south. So you have a very uh, solid system of understanding the condition of the shoreline every year. And the triggers tell you where the sand will go next, which is one of the most controversial and can be politically divisive decisions in a, in a collective uh, decision-making body like this. What town should get the sand? Is it Emerald Island? Is it Pine Knoll Shores? Is it some Indian beach? Who's going to get it? You guys have made that an objective, rational choice based upon the shoreline condition and the triggers you're talking about. Uh, tell you that when the beach gets to a certain level of erosion, that's the next project to do. Is that how those triggers work out? Yeah. I mean, you know, in a nutshell, we take a very volumetric um, approach. So, you know, we kind of measured the volume of sand, um, if you will, um, and kind of partitioned our, our kind of management reaches based on kind of geomorphology, the volume of sand, and the 30-year and storm. And I'll, I'll let the engineers explain all that, um, if you will. So, so for instance, if so, each each like uh, a compartment has a, a a different trigger. So I'll, I'll just make it up. If Emerald uh, Isle East has a trigger of once they reach 275 cubic yards of linear foot on average, that's their you know a trigger to you know nourishment, and they're eroding at a five cubic yard linear foot rate. Well, geez, if they're, you know, 20 cubic yards above their threshold and then they're eroding at five cubic yards of linear foot, we got about four more years to go before yep. they get nourished. Wow. Well, you know, Indian Beach, they may have 
a different, well, they do have a different, you know, trigger and they have a different erosion rate. So it may be 11 years before we have to nourish them. And, you know, again, everybody got on board with that. So um, granted hurricanes, you know, shake that up a little bit, but still though, we could still look at our baseline triggers and what the hurricanes did uh, to them. So, you know, we may not have to nourish a whole entire island after uh, a relatively minor hurricane. Uh, Rudy, one thing that uh, you hear a lot about uh, from uh, both advocates and uh, opponents, I guess, to beach nourishment as a form of beach restoration and shore protection is the availability of sand. Yeah. Um, in Carteret County, uh, how how is the sand sourced presently? Uh, and I guess maybe a little bit historically. And um, is, do you will those sources be kind of perpetual, or are you planning to have to change those up at some point in the future? Yeah. So again, you know, we have a, like what we call a a fifty year plan, and you can imagine we need a lot of sand over twenty five miles over fifty years, correct? <laughs> so we're fortunate again that the Army Corps of Engineers dredges of the of the port at Moorhead City. They've been doing that since 1930s, if you will, and they've been dumping a lot of sand offshore. And it's basically, and you'll love this, guys. So the like dump pile, if you will, um, is straddles the state and uh, and federal line, which is a uh, three miles offshore. So there's a lot of sand there. It's not enough for the for the whole entire five, you know, decades worth that we're uh, talking about, but that's a nice source of, of sand for us. So here's the part you love. So you have one federal agency, the Corps of Engineers, taking sand out of state waters, dumping it in federal waters. So we have to go to another federal agency, BOEM, to get a sand and gravel lease to return the sand back onto state beaches, if you will. <laughs> so, um, and that's, that's why, that's why consultants make money in America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's no problem. We're you know, glad no. to get the sand and Bohm's been very good to work with the cores. You know, the core can be good, <laughs> good to work with, uh, chuckle, chuckle. Um, so yeah, so, um, so we've, um, and I'm, and I'm glad you asked this question. So, so we've we realized that we don't have enough sand sitting offshore that the Corps has been, you know, dredging since the 1930s. So we've uh, we've you know just launched our what we're calling a sand search uh, a 2.0. And so we're um, we, we we just signed that contract. So we're going to start looking for all areas uh, offshore uh, of that, if you will. Okay, your supplemental and, sand search investigation. We, I think I uh, ran a story in Coastal News today. Yeah. Uh, it's a million-dollar sand search investigation, I think. Is that right? How much are you spending a, on it? Oh, it's it's closer to $3 million. Uh, We The like million-dollar number you saw was uh, the amount we think we're just going to spend on that contract in, in the next year. So, I see. Yeah. So. But to get a delineated borrow area with actual quantities, permitted availability, yes. it's about $3 million. Uh, not a not 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 an extraordinarily uh, extraordinary cost. That's fairly typical. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you know, uh, I try to explain it to our our kind of cons our constituents in sort of old kind of economic geology terms. You got a resource 
and versus a reserve. So the resources, well, yeah, it's out there, but the but the quality may not be good. It might be expensive to to extract, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It might be too far away. Um, and then you got the reserve, which is the economically viable sand to um, extract. It's good quality, and and we can get it to the beach. That's in, that's affordable. So um, I kind of broke it down for our uh, constituency um, in those terms. Uh, Rudy, uh, just a follow up to that. I mean, and this might be, you know, forgive me if this is just a bridge too far, but has there been any um, thought as to uh, alternatives to beach nourishment as a way to uh, protect these these islands as the shore protection director? I mean, obviously, beach nourishment is a, a powerful tool, but we know that uh, armoring is often explored uh, via seawall or revetment, um, as well as geotextile tubes and things like that. Uh, and then ultimately, on the other end of the spectrum, we talk oftentimes about retreat and moving off of the beach, which I don't think you guys are ready for that yet. But uh, what what uh, beyond or aside from beach nourishment, what else do you think about as far as uh, potential tools in the old toolbox? Yeah, I guess uh, I guess we're sort of a a one song band um, when it comes to that. But part of that is the state of North Carolina doesn't allow uh, hardened structures unless it's for a navigation. And when I say navigation, uh, I mean for the, you know, Port Authority, um, deep draft stuff. Um, and they will allow, they have a legislation that allows for, you know, terminal groins at the end of inlets. And um, as you know, a terminal groin is sort of a mini a mini jetty if you will but it has a mechanism to allow the sand to bypass it so the jetty is designed to be really low so the sand goes over it or maybe it has a little a weir in it a hole in it or it's just short so the sand can you know go go around it so um without having the luxuries of you know being able to install a seawall seawall which i doubt we would do anyway an offshore breakwater system or a series of, of you know, groins, uh, the kind of hard solution is, you know, completely out of, out of the picture for us. So the soft solution wins. Let's talk about money. Uh, you mentioned $200 million has been invested since 1999. 18 million cubic wow. yards of sand has been placed on the shoreline. What an, well, that's just an incredible It is, and it is yeah. extraordinarily well done. And, uh, if we can, Rudy, I'm going to ask you to try to do a pie chart with me. Uh, there are four parts to the pie. The county's money, uh, the municipalities, your partners, your local partners, the state of North Carolina, and our good friends at the federal level. Can yes. you roughly break down the contributions between these four levels of state government, federal, state, county, and municipal? I can, because um, <laughs> you're a professional, and I know. You, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give you the exact numbers. How's that? Um, so it's actually 224 million dollars, and okay. it's uh, 20 million cubic yards because we 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 uh, completed some of our projects uh, this year. So 64 percent of that has been uh, federal, and um, the federal part is either with the Corps of Engineers and the and the harbor and or FEMA reimbursement. Um, 11% has been uh, a state and 25% has been uh, local dollars. 
Okay. That's interesting. So uh, on the on the federal contribution here, you're talking about the beneficial use of the dredge material from the Moorhead inlet management process. Yeah. Right. As opposed to a federally approved shore protection project, a 50 year beach nourishment project, which I understand you do not have. Correct. In Carteret County. And then the FEMA reimbursement, because you guys are damn good at monitoring your beach and you know about the loss of sand and can document it when there is a hurricane, the disaster supplemental payments from FEMA right. feed into your system. But this is an important thing for And the reason I wanted to know this uh even though 64% of the revenue is coming from the federal side, there is no federal shore protection project here. Right. That this this program is substantially funded at the local level and the state level. Um, and uh, I, I, I bring this up because our good buddy, uh, Rob Young, the director of the program for the study of developed shorelines, who I know you know very well at Western Carolina University, uh, wrote an interesting op-ed in the New York Times this week. And his point in that New York Times editorial or op-ed was that we cannot protect everything. We have to start to figure out where to invest and what areas are warrant investment for short protection and beach nourishment and which ones don't. And Rob, uh, who we love and have had on the pro program many times, uh, his point of view is, look, these shoreline management programs are not really federal necessarily. They really ought to be handled at the state and local level. Uh, and I hold your program up as an example that it can be done. As you said, your bed tax right now is producing about $4.5 million annually for your beach management program. Uh, that's real money. And uh I don't know. Are you confident that that your program can continue uh, without the sort of disaster supplemental funding? Um, yeah, let's dedication? talk a little. Yeah, you like know, help us yeah. Out. Well, let's you know talk a little bit of of the kind of nuance though of the of the, of the federal funding and the more it's his and, and more at Harbor. So I mean, they dredge about a million cubic yards out of the, out of the system every year, right? Now that's a lot. Yeah, I don't I don't care where you are. Um, so obviously there's a shoreline impact to the adjacent, the immediately adjacent shoreline. And in our case, that's the Fort Macon and Atlantic beach. So every third year, the core, instead of taking the material and dumping it offshore, they'll put it on the beaches of Fort Macon and or Atlantic beach. So I include that as federal money going towards yeah. shore protection, even yeah. though it's navigation. It is, and and they damn well ought to do that because they shouldn't waste this resource. They're not. They're they're those expenditures are to manage a navigation channel with an ancillary benefit to the adjacent beach to offset the downdrift right. impact of the damn uh, channel. Preach on, brother. Exactly. Yeah. So, so when I say sixty four percent of the nourishment that's gone on the beach is federal, you got to remember a lot of that. I mean, a lot of that is part of the port and them offsetting the impacts. It's not all FEMA money, if you will. Right. But my question is, what's the state of the of concern? We we, we just did a show with Emily Mazzucarati. Uh, this will come out the week after about the general vibe around climate change. And I realize you're in North Carolina. Uh, I've if you've been through this part of the world, this is not uh, Santa Monica, California. So I'm, I'm, I am wondering if, if the confidence level is high that the shore protection program 
as good and as sound as it has been, is adequate for a bigger, stronger storms and maybe sea level rise implications? Yeah, excellent question. And I'll, I'm going to tie in the Rob's op-ed with that question, if you don't mind. So, Please do. In, yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, you're right. I mean, Rob, I haven't, I have, I haven't read the uh, article, but like I said, I know Rob really well and vice versa. Um, I understand that you got to pick your battles every now and then against, you know, Mother Nature. And I think in North Carolina, and especially on for us, the battle lines have already been, you know, picked. You look at uh, North Carolina, we're 325 miles long, as I mentioned. And believe it or not, almost exactly one half is developed and the other half isn't. So we've already kind of picked our battles about where people are and where they're and, and where they live. Um, and that's kind of different, I think, than other states where it's almost the whole entire shoreline is, you know, developed. developed. Um, with that said, again, for, you know, Bogue Banks, as I mentioned in the beginning of this program, we're the only developed beach within that middle 100 miles of the North Carolina coast. So, you know, we've kind of planted the flag here. Um, our our um, erosion rates are generally low, our, you know, our, you know, annual erosion rates. Um, so between our, again, geography, geology, where we are in the, in, in the coastal system with kind of lower um, erosion rates, and I think our management structure, we're pretty well poised to meet the challenges of, more storms and increase the sea level rise. Probably we're better positioned because of all those factors I mentioned than probably most, you know, communities. So with that said, everybody feels pretty darn comfortable, knock on wood. So uh, when the 4th of July uh, <clears throat> parade happens today, are you in the, are, are you in the car? Do you get to be uh-huh. in the car? Are you, <laughs> what's, uh-huh. do, do people know who you are and do they understand the program in the, in the public? Uh-huh. I did, yeah. Some some do, some don't. You know how it is, you know. And uh, we just um, long story here too is uh, Bogue Inlet, which is on our western side, separates us from uh, Bear Island. It uh, that inlet was right against our our shoreline back in the in the in the early two thousands, and it was you know there were sandbags and homes were almost going in. So in two thousand five, we actually moved of the inlet and let the old the old uh, tide Delta pretty much collapse and heal the uh the point there at the at the inlet and that was uh 16 years ago and it looks great but i mean the amount of turnover we've had in property ownership and people who used to come there to to vacation and now it's so it's you know yeah as i you know so you know people are are sort of i'm a I'm oblivious to it, which is fine. Yeah, in a way, it means you're doing it great. Exactly. It is invisible to them. uh, But you're right. The turnover on the shoreline, I was thinking, of course, there are new people who are probably not from a coastal area, have no idea what coastal sediment processes are or erosion, and just think the beach looks damn good and don't think about it. Exactly. And that means you're doing a damn good job. (laughs) That's what that means. As a matter of fact, the only phone call I even like to get is the beach is so wide it took us, you know, we, we, we had to walk too far or something like that. And I, if I could deal with those first yeah. world problems, um, it's all good. That's the kind of problem you want. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the 
we, we, we've, we've discussed the federal contribution, which is tri- primarily coming through the beneficial use of the material from a navigation channel. It's not truly uh, directly specifically designed for beach nourishment. Uh, you've got the FEMA supplemental. But leaving aside, in the case where you're working with a municipality, where the county uh, and the municipality are the principal actors financially, um, what typically is the relationship between the county's contribution through its bed taxes, uh, op- of course, assigned and determined by the commission, the beach commission you mentioned, yeah. and say uh, Pine Knoll Shores or one of the small municipalities? Uh, how, you, how do you guys split those responsibilities between the two? Yeah, so um, I'll give you a for instance. We just finished uh, three years of, of, of nourishment, uh, 21 miles worth. Um, $85 million total, about $50 million of that was uh, FEMA, and and uh, the other was was divided pretty much 25% Oxford tax and 25% state. And so basically the county, through our master plan, we, we got the permit, so the permit is in the county's name, um, and the towns, um, because, because for FEMA reimbursement processes and just for just other I see other issues. The towns contracted with a uh, great with a, a Great Lakes or or the contractor, and it might be it might be three different contracts, but it's one season, right? Right. So, but it's under one permit too. So we, the county, would basically give the towns of the money to pay the contractor. So, so we took in all the state money. We took in obviously or actually tax and we doled it out to the uh, to the towns i see so they end up writing the check but they're not the source of the revenue did they have a local uh, property tax assessment that contributed to you know within the jurisdiction of the of the town that was also I, a component? yeah excellent question so they do but they didn't because we were in such good a financial um space okay. at this time they did not need to use that and I'll tell you a little, a little story about that. So again, early in the broadcast, I mentioned when, when we first got our kind of program revved up and it was after Hurricane Floyd in 1999 and we're, you know, people were just trying to make it work. The, again, the towns passed their own uh, voter, voter approved bond referendum. And um, the, you know, oceanfront rate, again, it all depends on the value of, you know, the valuation at the time, but it was like, at that time, it was like forty-six cents per one hundred per one hundred dollars okay. on the ocean front, and maybe sixteen, seventeen cents on the non-ocean front side. Okay, great. Well, fast forward a couple of years, you know, later when the bond is retired, folks are used to paying a sand tax, even though it's pretty high. So the towns all kept a little sand tax on the books. So instead of 46 percent 46 cents per you know 100 it was like three cents per 100 instead of 16 cents wow. per 100 dollars on the non-ocean front it was like one cent or a half cent so the rate and, drops yeah began and and we, and the towns weren't paying off a bond anymore they were just accumulating nourishment of reserve money to to you know help us just in case we didn't have have um, enough all right um and nobody cared because they were used to paying yeah. pretty high dollars. And, you know, I don't want to make, you know, light of the taxes, but 
no, no. One cent. One cent on you know one hundred dollars was like something like the equivalent of a bottle of wine for the whole year. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not a lot. It's it, it's budget dust for for folks. So it's really worked out nice. Well, it's you know, and 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 this is why it is the best program. And not only is the master plan, the continuity of leadership, the commission, the integrated financial strategies, the depoliticization of the process through triggers and monitoring, uh, shared costs on on offshore sand searches, that kind of thing. This is how it is damn well done. This is what it looks like uh, coastal America. This is what it looks like coastal counties. You have to play this coordinating role. And I argue for it all the time. And we don't really have strong county leadership or regional thinking. Uh, it's generally state down to the locals. And that, that does work. I don't want to say Texas isn't successful, but if you're looking at sustaining shorelines and sustainable programs, Carteret County, and there are a few others. I don't want to say Dare County in North Carolina, also very effective uh, shoreline management strategies there as well. Um, but I think Carteret's the model. And uh, and I and I, I like to occasionally just put that out there for people who are <laughs> new to the ball game and wondering how the hell can you really handle these problems? They look so expensive and intractable. Uh, you know, look at Rudy's program and call him up. That he'll tell you how to do it. Well, and you know... Yeah, and- I'm sorry, Rudy. Yeah. I just wanted to. I just wanted to uh, get in on this because uh, Peter and I uh, are have given a great deal of thought to the idea of local funding and how to uh, crack that egg because it can be extremely difficult. And I would just second that that the fact that Carteret has the structure uh, to give you and you as the manager and the uh, or the Sandman, the director, all your titles, to give you the cover and to give the politicians who serve on the beach board the cover to really think about uh, the shoreline in the long term. I mean, so often it's we're just limited in our time horizons to five years, to whatever's right in front of us. And I just have to, again, compliment you, you guys on on really putting this together. Yeah, it's just like you said. It's like about every every other issue. It's you know, every, a politicians get elected every you know two or four years, and that's sometimes all you think about. And with this uh, program, we get to think beyond you know two or two or four years, if you will, because again, we got this you know a management scheme that sort of educates the uh, town officials as they go, and then they get on the commission, and it's it's really worked out nice. And I would I would add too, you know. I, getting back to some other points about trying to you know solve this issue and where do we and where we fight mother nature and where we don't and granted there are some places that you know maybe we don't but i think you know macroscopically more and more people are coming coming uh, to the coast despite you know what you're hearing about climate change and all those good things and whether that's right wrong or indifferent that's not up to us but you know more and more people are coming to the coast, not, you know, less and less. So, um, these, you know, management ideas need to, need to be really thought, you know, through going, going into the future. We do really love to go to the beach. And, and that's actually another question for, for you that I have for you, uh, Rudy is, um, with obviously tourism, uh, helping to drive uh, some of this revenue generation to pay for the shoreline management. Uh, that's that's welcome news, of course, if you're a taxpayer there, uh, to be able to put that on to the tourists who come and enjoy the shore is a great uh, cost share. Um, 
but I'm wondering, has, has does that put any sort of negative, uh, in, does that put any incentive on uh, town planners and uh, people who, uh, you know, are thinking about the future in terms of incentivizing um, certain types of development? And, you know, is, is, is there any pushback to tourism kind of in Carteret County? Uh, that that you can detect. I know that your guys are having some, you know, record-breaking tourist seasons. Yeah, yeah, and we could talk about 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 the about the tourists and why maybe we're a little bit higher than you know some other folks. And that's the, yeah, you know, um, again, there's been again, Bogue Banks. It's, it's sort of unique because we don't have a municipal uh, a sewer system on the island, so right there limits your growth right off the bat. Right, because you're basically well. It about should, either. unless you're in Florida, where they over rely on septic and cause real water quality problems. But exactly. glad, I'm glad you guys are limiting development for that reason. Yeah, exactly, and yeah, for that reason. And then you know the, I mean, not and you know the towns understand that you know if you only have so many you know septic areas, um, they've also have a, a, a building height of restrictions on as well um for you know residential properties so you know yes sure the houses are getting bigger and bigger and bigger but um they're you know capped off here you know you just can't go you know absolutely crazy so i would say you know you know the building uh, construction issues they're you know here but again for the reasons i just talked about they aren't you know too bad it's more i think for us the onslaught um is more of like you know traffic flow and, and things of that nature than it is more kind of more uh, development per se all right one last subject rudy i want to touch on and it has to do of course i want to talk about the roof of red knot uh which is a shorebird caladerus can canutus caladerus canutus rufa here got some things about this bird tyler robin sized shorebird Tiny guy. A master of long-distance aviation, migrates 9,300 miles each year from Tierra del Fuego at the end of South America north to central Canada. And on this incredible long trip, it stops in the mid-Atlantic shoreline to eat and regain about 50% of its weight. So it can, wow. can right? Extraordinary bird, size of a robin. And uh, it, it spends a lot of time on Delaware Bay, but it also spends time on the mid-Atlantic coast. And one of the real threats to it is the overharvest of, uh, of uh, the, hell the, horseshoe the horseshoe crab. It eats the horseshoe crab eggs and others. I mean, Rudy, here's what I want to know. It's, it, this thing has lost population by 75% since 1980. There's not a lot of them. Your area is part of a designated critical habitat area proposal from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service right now. Uh, they tend to spend about 10 to 15 days on the mid-Atlantic shoreline during their incredible migration. I mean, come on. We're, we're fans of these birds. How the hell? Uh, now, operationally, what I want to know is I know people can get upset by limitations created by the Endangered Species Act, but I expect responsible public officials like yourself and your Beach Commission to take a hard look at operationally what you can do to accommodate this particular uh, bird that moves through your area on its way from South America to the middle of Canada. I mean, how much of an operational problem 
would a designation be for you? Do you have you sorted that out yet? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, a couple things. So um, when we when the when they when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service listed the bird as you know threatened, we you know were a supportive of that because of all the issues you mentioned. You know, it goes from the the most southern tip of South America to the most a northern tip of you know North America, um, and so you know, we, we knew that the critical habitat would have to be, you know, forthcoming because anytime the services list the species, they have to designate critical habitat. And we, we, you know, volunteered. We said, listen, if, if you do do critical habitat on, 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 you know, Bogue banks, which we thought we weren't going to be critical habitat because we don't have any kind of horseshoe crabs. I mean, in the literature, you never see the words Bogue banks and red knot in the same sentence. It's always, okay. you know, always Delaware or, um, or the, or the, you know, Jersey beaches, which have a lot of, you know, horseshoe crabs. No problem. Okay. So we, so we said, listen, if you do do, if you do designate critical habitat on bow banks, just mimic the areas that the piping of plover are, you know, designated, okay. which is kind of, which is kind of near, you know, on the inlets. And, you know, our thought process was, you know, well, we already kind of, we already quarantine off areas. So no one can, you know, drive on the beach because, because of, of the plover and you know we're very we understand that and it's you know manageable so to our surprise a month and a half ago they designated all of boat banks not hmm. just the inlet areas where the piping plover like to hang out yeah but but the whole entire island and we're like that doesn't make any sense yeah. it, it I mean you look at the designation <laughs> and it, you're right july 15th the u.s forest yeah. i mean the fish and wildlife service designated 649,000 acres of critical habitat across 13 states it's a, an extensive habitat designation and i it uh, there are a number of states who are questioning the precision of that habitat designation and the implications for you but even let's assume worst case scenario that it is critical habitat. and But because the birds are only resident for a couple of weeks, I mean, how big of a deal would it be? And can't you just comply, Rudy? Can't you set an example? Even though, look, I'm not saying, I don't know what else they eat. I know that they primarily uh, eat uh, horseshoe crab eggs, but I do believe they also uh, forage on the beach. They must eat other things they because they, they go things. such a long way. Yeah. 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 They eat uh, the little donax clams and the little, you Okay. Know, so all right yeah so why can't yes. you help the bird out rudy <laughs> well um again i again i'm a i'm a sand guy so you know our kind of little argument has been you know we have all these protections i'm in i'm in, I'm in place when we do you know these these uh, large you know projects we you know, we dread certain times of the year if there's a nest of any type we you know have that monitored and all that good stuff yeah. so you know we you know our kind of thought process you know we don't by imposing critical habitat, what other protections are the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service seeking? Correct. And and if they say, well, we're not, we just want to designate it as you know, critical habitat, then my, then my retort is, well, then why are you designating it if you don't want any other okay. protections? And vice versa, if you don't put any more protections on there, you're going to have a 501c3 group to sue you saying, yeah. you know, so... Yeah, a, and but again, do, do, have they have they talked? The biological opinion yeah. draft has that been created? Do we know what the operational restrictions might be in your area, or have they not specified that yet? Okay, so in the rule, if you if you look, they have a series. They say the red knot will could uh, create special management 
considerations, okay. and that's the terminology. All right. And the special management con- considerations have all those scary words like walking dogs, uh, beach driving, beach nourishment, all those, all those, you know, type of activities. Got so it. obviously Got anybody, it. anybody sees that they go, why would we take the risk of being in a critical habitat? When all right. They're, I, I, they're already foreshadowing some of the, some of the Okay. Samples. But for what, I mean, what, what the question I have is about what duration of time, let's assume that, that you yeah. can't do anything, but they're only resident for, a, I mean, are they limiting it in terms of time or are they saying they stop off for two weeks all throughout the summer so that we're talking about the entire summer period of uh, operation yeah. restrictions or do you know yet? I don't know. I don't know. I don't either. Well, I just think, you know, Rudy, I think you guys do such a fantastic job and I don't mean to put you on the spot on that, but, but I know you guys are absolutely serious about the program you run. You run it incredibly well, environmentally, economically. Uh, It's just the best. And, and I'm a huge fan and, and I hope, you know, people can get a little up in arms about this stuff. And I hope the Fish and Wildlife Service folks are, are working closely with you guys to talk about exactly what the implications are to, to see how it can be compatible because the work you do is important. It's important. Right. And I would just add on to that, that there is value to that critical habitat, not only for all of the people of the world to preserve this species, which I think, Rudy, you agree with, but also in the long run, you know, uh, as as our tourism industry changes from being, uh, you know, the traditional beach tourism of old, which, let's be honest, was uh, maybe a little bit uh, rowdy to a more ecotourism based thing where huh. you're looking yeah. to see, you know, Carteret County's seal has two right whales on it. Yeah. And I bet that people would love to see right whales you know, swimming up and down the coast uh, as they migrate off the coast of Carteret County. I bet people would take, they would pay to go out and see those animals at a safe distance. And I bet birders, knowing knowing how uh, yeah. devote and uh, uh, thirsty birders are to get a good <laughs> look at an interesting <laughs> bird, I bet these red knots will be a draw. And so, you know, it's, it's easy. I would say that, you know, we have the benefit uh, in our audience of being able to talk to uh, federal people and people at, at at county and local government levels and i think that we need to educate people so when you do get those scary words like beach nourishment and driving and things like that that uh we are that we we understand what that means and yeah, let's try and really try to size it up yeah you know what i, I agree and you know again not saying how you know unique we are but again you go to the next adjacent island and it's uh, it's the Cape Lookout National Seashore. It's almost fifty miles long. Right. That's that's a great place to do critical habitat. Sure it is. <laughs> you know. Right. And, what they, and and so that was our point. Like, if you want to go see birds or or the Shackleford ponies, you you may have heard of. Yeah. Um, you know, man, we we got that up in Carteret County, but and I don't want to sound like you know leave us alone on Bogue Banks, but yeah, again, it's sort of that's a like, fair you know, argument to say there there are clearly compatible areas for these species immediately exactly. next door that are 50 miles long. Uh, yes. Are we not contributing to the betterment of this species uh, already? I mean, those are the kind of and yes. so opposition and questions are not necessarily antagonistic. And I I think that the kind of professionalism that you guys are bringing to the discussion is important and. Uh, I'm confident you guys will work through it with the Fish and Wildlife Service. 
Yeah, there's there's a big zone again, and, and not to make this into a roof of <laughs> talk. Um, so they've um, the the like proposed area they have extends from uh, Boganlet, which is us, all the way to Oregon Inlet, which is almost 150 straight miles hmm. of critical habitat. There's no no breaks. break in that, and we're like, you know, your sensitivity analysis is. That dial is, um, yeah, you know, is kind of on Spinal Tap eleven, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, a little fine tuning is in order. Yeah, I mean, I think it's too sensitive if you feel like you need yeah. 150, 50 straight miles. So it's, you know, it's, you know, those type. Right. I think, you know, fair right. arguments. Though, Good, that, fair you know, arguments. You can make. Work it out. Don't get it too political. Calm people yeah. down. That's my big advice when it comes to ESA issues, but. Rudy, thanks a lot for taking time out of the busy schedule that I know you have in running the Shore Protection Program over there in Carteret County from the fine, beautiful beach town of Swansboro, North Carolina. Go visit it. Go see Carteret County. It's absolutely spectacular. Ladies and gentlemen, Rudy Rudolph, the Shoreline Protection Manager for Carteret County, North Carolina, one of our favorite professionals on the American Shoreline. Always good to check in with you, Rudy. Beaches and shelter, and hotels, my father's